It is time now to welcome back Midweek Media Watch. Looking forward to this with Hayden Donnell. Kia ora, Hayden. Kia ora, Karen. Did you have a good uh, Christmas and all that? Oh, yeah, I had, a good, I had a good Christmas. We went camping for the first time as a family. I have a five-month-old girl, so camping wasn't a sure thing. <laughs> no. uh, we, we, went about, we went to a suburban campsite about 10 minutes from our house, but it went well. Uh, oh, I see. Ten minutes from your house—that was that was convenient. Yeah, <laughs> that one, was as far as I was willing to venture for one night. Uh, we did no, we did three. Three. Oh, good. Okay. All right. Midweek media watch. You what? You're looking to start with the biggest media news of the week, and that's Tova O'Brien's court battle with Discovery. Yeah, just to give a bit of context of the, on this one, I mean, uh, Discovery bought three, which was MediaWorks' TV arm um, in sort of late 2020. And the companies kind of existed amicably, amicably together for a year or so until about last until last year, uh, MediaWorks started poaching away some of three's talent to work on its new talk radio station today fm which will be taken over the rocks frequency in auckland 90.2 and uh this uh the biggest name that it sneered away was of course tova o'brien three's political editor and that all seemed like a big win for them uh but this has hit a snag recently when discovery enforced a restraint of trade clause in tova o'brien's contract it means that she can't work on her new job if for three months if it's in competition with her old job tova o'brien appealed this she said that her new job isn't in competition with her old job uh to the Employment Relations Authority, but on Monday it ruled against her and ruled that Discovery could actually enforce this restraint of trade. So why did the judge rule against uh, Tova? Yeah, it essentially accepted that uh, argument that O'Brien's new radio show role is in competition with her old role as a political editor on three. And so Discovery had argued that it would just be archaic to think that these radio and TV news shows aren't in direct competition with each other and that this is all a big media pool and everyone's just competing for the same audiences and the same advertising dollars and there aren't these kind of delineated, strong uh, lines between shows anymore. People don't buy ads like that. And they were supported on that point by the media commentator Gavin Ellis and that argument was obviously uh, accepted by the authority. Uh, if we accept that argument though, wouldn't it mean it's, it's basically impossible for someone like Tova to move anywhere in the media without breaching the restraint of trade clause? Yeah, so that's basically Tova O'Brien and her lawyer's argument. If we're using just competition as a yardstick and we're saying that the media market is now this big amorphous economic blob where everyone just competes with everyone, then it follows that, I mean, it would be basically impossible for Tova O'Brien to switch jobs within journalism without breaching her restraint of trade. I mean, even if we're just talking about competition for advertisers, does that mean she can't move to Facebook or Google, which is the media's primary competitors for digital ad revenue? And I mean, maybe that's an exaggeration, but that was pretty much what Tova O'Brien claimed in this uh, employment hearing. Uh, She said, basically, if this definition of competition gets upheld, then she'll be forced back into uh, bartending, which I think was her job before journalism. That's all she could basically do for these three months. Uh, 
Yeah, uh, that that does seem pretty compelling. But I mean, even if you don't accept that, over at the spin-off, the law experts Dawn Duncan and Andrew Geddes have argued that the judge erred in enforcing this restraint of trade. And I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to be able to sort of get into the technicalities all that well. But essentially, their argument boils down to, look, our courts have generally valued the free flow of labour highly. They don't traditionally enforce these restraints of trade and they're sort of treated as void unless they're fair and reasonable, like they involve a senior executive with really deep knowledge of a company's economic plans, or if enforcing them actually uh, outweighs any wider interests of the public and not enforcing them. And and on that note, I mean, Andrew Geddes and Dawn Duncan didn't really see how the benefits of this restraint outweigh the harm of keeping one of our most incisive and well-known political journalists away from her job for what will be, I think, seven weeks in the end. Ryan Hayden, speaking of enforcement actions, you, you wanted to cover a, a, a recent successful ASA complaint. Uh, yes, I do. Uh, about now, us. <laughs> about you. Not not yeah, lately, this, but morning report. Yeah, this is quite a funny one, I guess. I mean, for a long time, RNZ's morning report has had the Twitter bio, New Zealand's most listened to morning news show. And uh, that is until recently when that text became the subject of a complaint to the Advertising Standards Authority. New Zealand's most listened listened to morning news show. Okay, that particular line. Inaccurate. That's what the complaint says. That's misinformation, part of the infodemic. So in the latest radio survey results, Morning Report was actually deposed from its ranking as the number one most listened to morning news show by News Talk ZB's Breakfast with Mike Hosking. And so the complaint to the ASA said, news, well, sorry, Morning Report was making this mislead, misleading claim on Twitter in bioform. And after getting this complaint, Morning Report actually did change its Twitter bio, so it caved into the complainant. And its Twitter bio now simply mean, reads uh, RNZ's Morning News Show without any claim to high listenership or even listenership at all. So, I mean, <laughs> if you have been monitoring Morning Report's Twitter bio and you've noted the change, that's why. Uh, the ASA recognised that adjustment and didn't refer the complaint on for further action. Well, thank goodness the audience isn't being deceived any longer, Hayden. That's absolutely true. And, I mean, this is a win for truth and justice. I, I would note, though, probably RNZ might be a little bit peeved about this because I think for years News Talk did advertise Hosking's show as the number one in talk radio. Uh, despite Morning Report's larger audience numbers. I mean, that that didn't uh, necessarily compel an ASA complaint uh, from RNZ supporters or RNZ. But, I mean, still, you'd have to say this was quite a shrewd and a, a cutting move, maybe a slightly petty one, from this complainant. Who was the complainant? This I don't know. <laughs> right, you don't know, right. I mean, we should be launching a media media watch investigation into this one, right? Because if it did come from within the NZME stable, then it'd be quite funny. Well, you also wanted to quickly address a question that we raised last year about Hilary Barry and her chocolate fish promotion. Yeah, that's right. So just to remind everyone, uh, last year Hilary Barry, uh, she on air made this promise. You go and have your first jab, I'll send you a chocolate fish. A chocolate fish? I will send you a chocolate fish to every New Zealander who goes out tonight and has their first jab. Wow. 
It's a lot of chocolate now, I, fishes or not? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I mentioned this to you in passing, just as a creditable kind of effort by a prominent member of the media to up our vaccination drive. Um, but I think back when I mentioned it to you, you had a question that I couldn't answer, and that was how much does this all cost to send a chocolate fish to all these people in the mail? And um, you'll be pleased to know that that question has now been answered. Oh, thank goodness. How much? Uh, so just noted a recent interview. They're doing a bunch of promotional interviews for Seven Sharp, but Hillary Barry did actually reveal the cost. She said that the she ended up sending out 300 chocolate fish. Uh, the fish themselves only cost 50 cents each, but the mail costs $4.50 per unit. So, I wow. mean, using a complicated mathematical method called adding things up, I have managed to uh, work out that the full cost of the chocolate fish was $1,500. And... That's a lot of uh, money. Four dollars fifty to send each one out. What did she do with them? Put them in some refrigerated unit or something? <laughs> no, that's just how much mail costs these days. I, mean, I don't know. You have to go down to the NZ Post with a sack full of gold bullion. No, you just put you just put it in an env- you just put it in an envelope and it get all squashed and you know a bit sticky. But it would be all right. Oh, I'm going to have to go away and do another ex- investigation <laughs> into exactly how she packaged them. So who's... This is very annoying. Yeah. Uh, no, no, there's a, there, you can actually look that up. That, Seven Sharp, Jeremy Wells has done a story on that. But, I mean, uh, Hillary Barry was also very clear that this wasn't coming out of TVNZ's judgment. This was... Uh, 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 expense budget. budget. This was a this was a personal expense, and what? the company didn't buy the fish. She spent fifteen hundred bucks sending out chocolate fish. Yeah, to support vaccinations in New Zealand. So, I mean, congrats again. I appreciate that. We're up over ninety percent now, and some percentage of that is due to this. I wonder if she thought about how much it was going to cost when she made that statement. Probably not. Yeah, some, this is a real warning against saying things uh, spur of the moment on live radio, isn't it? Sure is. <laughs> but I certainly, I would think I would have just put them in an envelope. <laughs> they're nice when they're all sticky like that. But anyway, now that... Now that the <laughs> this mis- is a warning play. No one accept any chocolate fish promotions from Karen Hay if she decides to make them on Never on would. No, okay, so now that that mystery's been solved, uh, you also wanted to highlight some stories from the latest issue of North and South. Both yeah, I've been really... Comp- and bad. That's re- I've been really complimentary of North and South over the last year or so, and it's been going sort of from strength to strength under its new ownership and leadership. Uh, I thought that its feature on Willie Huber, the founder of Mount Hutt, was really amazing last year. Uh, It delved into, he has been fated as a hero, but it delved into his past as an actual, as as a Nazi and an officer in the Nazi forces. And uh, I thought the latest issue is sort of, continues on the same vein. It has an excellent cover feature from Rebecca McPhee about the precarity of work in New Zealand. And there's also an article that touches on my media round from Pete McKenzie, and it delves into how the country's defamation laws have prevented us from having the kind of impactful Me Too movement that we've seen overseas in places like the US. Okay, so how are those laws stopping the media bringing sexual harassment to light? Uh, we, we've had a lot of high-profile Me Too stories here. Yeah, I mean, we have. There's been stuff about, uh, you know, for instance, Russell McVeigh. But the issue with these stories is that while places like the US have free speech protections that allow the media to name uh, alleged perpetrators, our defamation law law is much stricter and the media essentially has to 
prove things, harassment complaints to a legal standard if they're going to name people. And that's hard to do without the benefit of some of the resources that an agency like the police have at their disposal. And so even in a story like Russell Vey, which I mentioned, that complainant was unnamed. For a, 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 and that's because the media are essentially scared of defamation proceedings being lodged against them. And so a complainant. So I've actually covered this story in the past. And so uh, Alison Moore uh, spoke to me about this in March 2020. Uh, and this is what she said. You know, I, I have regular contact with our defamation lawyer uh, and he often sends me and the team back to square one <laughs> on stories and we, you know, have to redo stuff until it reaches a, a publishable level legally and journalistically. Um, so you almost have to be more stringent on these stories than you might on other stories. Yeah, that's Alison Moore and she stuffs me to NZ editor. Now, what she's saying there is about how hard it is to get these kinds of stories, Me Too stories, across the line here. But even more than that, even if a story is proved to a high standard, a defamation threat can scare many survivors into silence here. And I mean, it's hard to say those fears aren't justified as well when we've seen how our court system has been used by powerful people like Colin Craig. And even though he ultimately wasn't successful in his defamation action against his former employee, Rachel McGregor, he was able to use the resources at his disposal to upend her, upend her life over a long period using the courts. And he's not the only rich person that's used his resources to end our defamation law to silence someone recently. We had, I think, if you remember, in 2020, the billionaire Bob Jones, he took action against filmmaker Renee Mikey for calling him a racist. And at the time, the Justice Minister, Andrew Little, said that he was sympathetic to the idea of our defamation law changing, making reforms to it. But he's since become Minister of Health. <laughs> We've had a lot of COVID stuff and there's been no discernible progress on that reform. So it is, it is really good to see North and South taking up the mantle and taking up the cause here. Well, that's the good, but uh, you weren't exactly thrilled with everything in the magazine? No, I, I didn't love a story there headlined Voices of the Unvax. And it's just four unvax people talking about their lives and why they've decided not to take this safe shot that keeps them out of hospital during a pandemic. I see. So they would probably argue that these people are the subject of quite punitive government policies. Yeah, I... Yeah, so I mean, this is, I guess, the argument for publishing this kind of story. I mean, there's sort of unprecedented sanctions and restrictions on unvaxxed people at the moment, or unprecedented, at least in recent memory. I, I mean, a few things to note, though, about these four personal testimonies from unvaxxed people. We're not exactly short on personal testimonies from the unvaxxed, are we, recently? Just about every newspaper's been full of them for a few months. I mean, if you want to hear firsthand from an anti-vaxxer, you can just go down to your local vaccination centre and they'll probably be shouting through your car window at your children. I mean, uh, more than that, I mean, the format is kind of an issue here for the media, right? I mean, allowing people to write in their own words really negates the possibility for uh, of internal fact-checking. I mean, it means you can't have countervailing opinion for from, for instance, an expert within the story. And, and though these testimonies are clearly subject to editing and they have, haven't have got totally spurious claims throughout them, they still 
touch on misinformation and there's really no way in this format for that to be corrected. So I, I, I thought the format in particular was a mistake. All right, Hayden. Hey, well, thank you. It's been good to talk to you for the first midweek media watch and you're back every week? Yeah, oh, I've, we're still sorting it out. I think that maybe we will be going back to week in, week out, but who knows what Omicron has in store for us. Yeah, who knows. Hayden, great. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. Hayden Donnell with Midweek Media Watch.